I, I gained an opportunity that I'll, I'll be glad to tell you about when something comes of it, but I had to send in a, a video. Um, and and I'm not, I don't know if y'all remember when I was hired on, if you were here, that video was very uncomfortable for me. I'm not good on video, uh, which is ironic, I know, but um, uh, I had to send in a one-minute video of my testimony. And uh, the first I took it, I took nine different tries, okay, for a one-minute video, all right? And the first four or five tries, I put on what I call my Oconee County accent, okay? I didn't talk like me. I talked like like who was raised up in school to speak, you know? And uh, I felt the Holy Spirit tap me on the shoulder, and in regular Farmington vernacular, he said, boy, what are you doing? Be yourself. And uh, and so I began to be myself and, and speak as I would. And the Holy Spirit just really spoke to my heart and uh, and and did what David asked for. David asked that he would return the joy of his salvation unto him. And I tell you what, I found myself there in just that minute and 20 second video. Uh, I deleted a few more because I got emotional. And I'm not sending that either. OK, but I am saying this as I was doing that, I, I, I realized something. Uh, that it had been a long time since I'd sang this song, and special was this week for me. And so, uh, yes, this is a hymn. Yes, it sounds just a little bit different than you're familiar with it, but if you get the, the groove here, then, then go ahead and sing along with me if you would. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit. Washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission, perfect delight, visions of rapture. Now burst on my side, angels descending, bring from above echoes of mercy and whispers of love. And this is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior 
the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission. All is at rest. Well, I and my Savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness. Lost in his love. And this is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Praising my Savior all the day long. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to James chapter 2. I'm sorry, James chapter 1. We're going to actually finish chapter 1 this morning, so next week we'll be in chapter 2. James chapter 1, and we are considering uh, our next uh, paragraph, which is verses 18 through 27. So when you find yourself there, if you will, stand with me. You're not standing for me, you're standing for the Word of God in reverence of the reading of the Word of God. And we'll begin standing, or excuse me, we'll begin reading in verse 18 of chapter 1 and read through verse 27. Of his own will begat he us with the Word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any man be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass, for he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God 
and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. I want to spend a few minutes with you this morning in these verses. And uh, if we title this, if I title this, uh, Faith Instructed is what I would give this a title of. And uh, I hope that that will suffice as we look through this morning. Uh, I want you to pray with me now. And you pray for me as I pray for you. If we come to this passage knowing what we know and not willingly hearing the word of God and not seeking the word of God in this, I will leave here knowing what we knew when we got here and not changed. Would you ask the Lord to speak to you here specifically and directly that you might be changed by the reading of the word and the preaching of the word of God? Father, we love you this morning. Once again, we thank you for the opportunity to be here. And Father, we do just that now. We come asking that you would impact us with this truth this morning. Help us, Lord, to see our need in this area. Help us, Father, to respond in obedient will. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We just uh, started in this epistle last week and... Uh, a few things I didn't share with you, and I'll scatter them over the next several weeks. But uh, for one, uh, the, the, the epistle of James is believed to be one of the oldest New Testament writings out there, one of the earliest New Testament writings out there. It was likely penned, uh, most likely, before any of the Gospels were even penned. Uh, it's a very early writing, and likely uh, contemporary with Paul's letter to the Galatians. They're probably in close proximity to one another, but one of the older writings. As stated, it challenges the walk of the believer and it seeks to encourage action. I think that's what we must uh, continue to remind ourselves in the study of this epistle. It is prescriptive. It is prescribing for you actions that should be undertaken. And it is uh, seeking that action would be taking. J. Ronald Blue makes this uh, analysis. James includes 54 imperatives in 108 verses. That's an average of one call for action every other verse. That means in these few five chapters here of 108 verses, 54 times James includes an, a call to action. Something that you should do, or begin to do, or continue to do. It's not any more evident than in the passage before us, and we'll note that, notice that in a moment. In the first uh, portion of chapter 1 we looked last week, James defines the difference between tests and trials and temptations. The, the former two being similar, the latter being Diverse. Again, we're reminded that God is seeking to develop the believer through tests and trials, where the enemy is seeking to destroy the believer through temptations to sin. God wants to draw you closer to himself. The enemy wants to drive you further from God. God is promoting greater dependence upon himself. The enemy is proposing greater independence from God. That's the dichotomy that's presented throughout this book. 
These truths are associated with what we said last week, faith tested. In the remaining verses of chapter 1 here, faith is being instructed. There's a very interesting aspect in the book of James, and I only began to see this uh, more clearly this week. And so if you feel differently about it, uh, give it some time uh, before you address me at the back door because it probably won't be friendly. Uh, Give it some time. Think through it. Pray through it. Read through it. And if you think I'm wrong about this statement, then I'm happy to talk about it. But I have come to the conclusion that James assumes the salvation of the reader. This book was written specifically to born-again believers. He assumes the salvation of the reader. He, he does not, there's not anywhere in the book of James that's going to give you a clear, concise presentation of the gospel whereby you must be saved. The assumption in the writing is that you've already heard that and you've already done that and now you are seeking to walk in that faith. That assumption is in here. There's, there's nowhere per se that he says this is how you are born again. It's just assumed. And in the assumption of salvation, and this is a dangerous assumption, by the way. I, I don't say that it's dangerous in the book of James because the Holy Spirit of God intended the book of James and superintended it for a particular purpose. In your life and conversations with people, you should not assume salvation. This is why that is uh, dangerous because if a person is born again and the assumption is made that they're born again, the further assumption will be, and as much as James does this as well, that then that person is also seeking to honor Christ with their life. And they may not be. And the one is likely connected to the other. It may be that they're not seeking to honor Christ with their life, not because they are disobedient Christians, but simply because they've never been born again. And oftentimes, I've had this conversation before, and I think that it's very important within the church body, within the body of Christ, that we understand this. People often look differently than they really are. So at, at, at times, you will see someone who looks and appears as if they are a very spiritually mature believer, and your expectations for them is of that of a very spiritually mature believer, and they may simply not be spiritually mature. They're just a believer. How does that look in mundane terms? It looks like that kid that is uh, in, the, in the, the highest percentile of height and weight. They're six foot tall, but they're 10 years old. And when you look at them, you assume, well, that kid's 15. And then when you talk to them, you walk away thinking, that's the most immature 15-year-old I've ever spoke to. Well, he's not a 15. He's 10. He's just big. He's just developed differently, or she. Well, a lot of times Christians are that way. They have this outward look. They have the terminology. They have the language. They, they have the dress. They have all of those things. And you're talking to them, and then they do something that is egregious to the walk of a believer, and you walk away thinking, well, Christians are horrible. Well, that guy's not a Christian or he's not a mature Christian. James is assuming that you are born again and that you have a desire to walk 
in the faith the way that God intended for the faith to be walked in. In that, he is warning of dangers. He is chiding lethargy or laziness, if you prefer, and he is challenging change in your life. Can I, can I tell you just in the, in the sweetest, kindest, most heartfelt, most loving way that I can, if you are not growing in spiritual maturity, you are dying. You are regressing. There is no such thing. There's really no such thing in life but society would have you believe otherwise, but I was raised to believe that there is no such thing in life as remaining static and status quo. You are either progressing or you are regressing. You're either swimming or you're drowning. You're either walking or you're standing still. You're either growing or you are dying. That does not lose its teeth when we start talking about the born-again believer. And so when somebody comes to a place of faith and they've accepted Christ as their Savior, they have been born again, there should be growth in their life. There should be enlightenment in their life. And it should be continual. And everybody's not going to be the same, but everyone should be growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's Bible. So, James is assuming that. He's assuming first that you're saved, second that you have a desire to grow. And he's speaking to you as if somebody, as if you would speak to somebody who you knew wanted to do better. That's how the book of James is written. It's very clear in verse 18, this assumption. I want you to see there first, verse 18 speaks of the process of the new birth. If there was anywhere in the book of James that speaks to salvation, verse 18 is the closest that we're going to get. And he's talking about the process, and what he says there specifically is, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits. I hope that you can hear the assumptive tone. If we wanted to say that in a more uh, 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 fuller context, we might would say this, Knowing then that you are born again, understand that he of his own will begat you. That's how that is phrased. James is just assuming the other part. He's telling you, listen, you're born again and you got that way by his will. He begat you of his will. You are born again by the will of God. Or he might be saying this, if you are born again... It is of his own will that he begat you. If he birthed you into the family of God of his own will, does it not stand to reason that he wants to see you come to maturity in the family of God? Of his own will he begat you. The statement, this statement qualifies the remainder of the discussion concerning a faith that behaves or a belief that performs, or specifically the verse wherein James will say in chapter 2, show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. James was not arguing there, and we'll get to it when we get to it, for a faith, a works-based faith. He's saying that if you're born again, you ought to work. This qualifies that of his own will he begat you. 
You're saved by the will of God. You're born again by the will of God, not by anything that you do or say. In these verses, the writer is establishing that the new birth is holy of God, not of works, but it is not without purpose. So there's a couple of things I want you to see here. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. I want to focus on that for a moment. I want you to first see according to his will. The process of the new birth is according to his will. Very pointedly, James states that your new birth is according to the will of God. That means you have not earned your way in. You did not come in to the family of God unbeknownst to the Lord. In fact, if it would not have been his will, you would not have come to faith to begin with. Every born-again believer is born again by the will of God. I could qualify that a hundred different ways, but I will say it this way, the gospel is for whosoever will, and every born-again believer is born again by the will of God, according to his will. Secondly, it's in association with the word. I think this is of the utmost importance. It's in association with the word. He there of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. It is that two things came together and something was born. And the word of God is one of those things. It is, it is that concept that in the birth of every born-again believer, the word of God is present. In some form, the word of truth is there and represented. Years ago, uh, we were in a discussion with young folks. Uh, this one was a young folk in that class, but she was a, literally a young folk at that time, 15 years old probably. And there was a conversation wherein this young lady was asking me, she, I, I forget now exactly what the indication was, does the Bible have to, is it necessary to read the Bible in order to be saved? That was the comment, and do you remember that concept a little bit there? And, and anyway, it, it, it turned into this ranging discussion. And that particular individual was really struggling with that concept. They just didn't understand why you had to have the Bible involved in salvation. It's really a, an, an odd conversation, isn't it? I mean, outside of the Word of God, why would you even know about salvation or desire salvation or comprehend the concept of salvation what are you being saved from if not from the things that the word of God defines you're condemned to and and that's the concept or the picture here James says listen it is by the word of truth it what we need to get into our minds and and it's so The word of God is imperative in the life of the believer from the new birth until the last breath. If you are not knee deep, elbow deep, waist deep in the word of God, you, you're adrift. You can't possibly Comprehend what is happening in the world. You can't possibly understand. 
The word of God is imperative in the new birth, but it is imperative in the continued walk of the believer. It should be integral to your life. We, we challenge it. Hey, read the Bible this way and read the Bible this way and read it this many days and read it in that many days and complete it this. Just read the Bible. It sounds so elementary and it sounds so trite. Why would you have to encourage any born-again believer? But the Word of God is imperative. You cannot be born again minus the Word of God. And you can't possibly live a victorious Christian life minus the Word of God. Any discussion of Christianity, salvation, redemption, faith, fruit, righteousness, holiness, etc., 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 that does not begin with center upon and end with the word of truth is a wasted discussion and it is profitless to the life of a believer. No profit at all. You know, three of the, the I, I hope I said the number right, some of the most dangerous words in Christendom is, well, I think, well, I feel like, well, what that says to me is, uh, it says what it says. It's black and white. The word of truth in association with the word. The process is according to the will of God in association with the word. In the, the next portion of verse 19, he speaks to, uh, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. There's a, a purpose. Actually, I'm sorry. It's the latter portion of verse 18. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. I notated that wrong and I apologize. Uh, that is the purpose of the new birth. Now, when I say purpose, I'm not trying to be exhaustive there. I'm not speaking exhaustively. Certainly there are many aspects of purpose in the new birth. And your definition of purpose in the new birth could vary from mine. And they could all be right. There could be a number of different purposes in the new birth. But one of them, and certainly an integral purpose of the new birth, is this idea of a first fruit, the first fruits of redemption, that God is showing in those who have been born again a first fruit. He is revealing this idea. It's, it's a purpose relative to the primary need. And, and this first fruit of redemption, for you and I, in our culture, that is a, an odd term. Uh, we don't speak first fruits very often. It's interesting. The idea of first fruit, uh, it carries all through uh, your believer's walk. It affects everything that we do. There is an idea there, but in our culture, first fruit is not very often thought of. I, I wanted to share with you this, these three comments from William McDonald, mainly because I didn't think I could do any better with my own words, and I'm going to give you a brief summary. But... He states that there are three possibilities to consider when we think of this first fruits of his creatures, this first fruits of redemption. First, the first fruits of a harvest was the first sheaf of ripened grain. That's literally what it was in their culture. The Christians to whom James was writing are the first believers in this 
current dispensation. These are people that were born again at Pentecost in Jerusalem of the ethnic Jews. He's writing to them. They're the first of their kind. And so that's one aspect that James is writing there among those first believers. And so that's one part. And, and in the totality of it, all believers are a kind of first fruits of his creatures. But the primary reference here, I think, James is talking to those Jews. Second, the first fruits were offered to God in gratitude for his bounty and in recognition that all comes from him and belongs to him. Now that's what the first fruits were for. They're saying we're given the first fruits unto God because all the fruits come from God. And certainly as this first fruit came, the rest of the fruit will come. That's the idea behind the first fruit. When we apply that to the believer's life, that puts legs on Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Paraphrase. There's that first fruit. And third, there is the first fruits uh, that were a pledge of a full harvest to come. When those first fruits came, the, the, that farmer, that, that one who was tending that field, believed that was a representation of more that would follow. That first fruit is the first indication of the fulfillment of that crop. And that first fruit, was, there was a lot of excitement associated with that. And so they gave it back to God to honor that pledge that more would follow. In that way, James is likening his readers to the first sheaves of grain in Christ's harvest. They would be followed by others down through the centuries, but they were set forth as a pattern uh, saint to exhibit fruits of the new creation. They were to yield the same kind of obedience to Christ which all the world will yield during the millennium. I would say to you that there is direct application there to the believer today. Uh, you, and the way you represent the redemption that God has so gracefully gifted you, is a picture to all that watch that they could experience that same redemption. And you are, a, uh, you are one of many that will come. You are a first fruit in that way. We should also consider that just as surely as you experience some first fruits in salvation. So what is the first fruit that the believer experiences in salvation? Well, some of those are those fruits of the Spirit. When we enjoy uh, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, there's the gifts of the Spirit. When we enjoy those, we are experiencing a first fruit of what eternity will be full of. The, the relationship that we enjoy with Christ now and the, the uh, difference that it expresses in our life now is just a little glimpse of what the fulfillment of it is going to be. And just as surely as we experience some of that first fruit of salvation, we should also express those gifts to others so that they would taste and see that the Lord is good. You ever been around somebody that was... Uh, Bitter, hateful, mean, snikey, snarky, whatever word you want to use. And you ever had the thought in your mind that I don't know what they had for breakfast this morning, but whatever it is, I don't want any of it. 
Well, to the antithesis of that, the believer ought to have that impact on everyone around them. I don't know what happened to him today, but whatever it was, I want some of it. That is a form of a first fruit. It's a promise of things to come. Verse 19 through verse 27, all to me uh, are a contiguous conversation, and they are speaking to the practical instructions of the new birth, the practical instructions of the new birth. And that is where he begins in verse 19, you know, be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Then he tells you that the wrath of man never works the righteousness of God, tells you to lay apart uh, filthiness and, and, and superfluous uh, naughtiness or over-the-top naughtiness or extreme wickedness and, and receive meekness and then in down through there, and then he gets into that whole doers and hearers of the word, the whole mirror thing. All of that is under this one heading of practical instructions of the new birth. These instructions in the scriptures are preceded by this word, uh, know this. I'm not going to give you the Greek word, I think it's ethos. Uh, but either way, it's know this. Know this. And that's what you see there. In the King James, you see the word wherefore. And, uh, you know, there's always been that thing about wherefore and therefore, see what it's there for, that, that whole situation. And so when you see the word wherefore or therefore, you're, you're referencing something that's already been said because of these things. These things should be true. Uh, know this works the same way. Uh, another way you see it sometimes is take note of this. Take note of this. The ESV and the NASB both use the same phrase, this you know, this you know. So we can see that a couple of ways. We can see first that James is affirming that the reader already knows that they are to be a kind of a first fruit, right? We comprehend that at some level. We may not understand exactly what a first fruit is. We may not exactly understand the cultural references of that, but we do know that whatever has happened in our life would be good for everyone else and we ought to be a representation of that. So at some level, we know that to be true. Know this, or you already know this. James is affirming that they already know and that since they know that, they should follow these practical instructions that are about to come. We also might see James saying, because of these truths concerning the first fruits, you must follow these practical instructions. But either way, we understand that the following instructions are foundational to the new birth, to the believer, and to a practical Christian faith. In fact, one uh, commentary that I read over in the last week or two uh, said that these eight verses boil down to three commands revolving around receiving the word, responding to the word, and resigning to the word. And that's tremendous. I wish I would have wrote it. Very good. Here, what we see is these things uh, pulled out. We see this imperative to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. That's the first one. Well, you say, well, what, is that, what does that exactly mean? Well, you know what that means because you've heard that old adage all your life. That how many ears do you have in comparison to how many mouths do you have? You ought to listen twice as much as you speak. That's the same command. Listen more than you talk. The other one you, you, you hear in communication, it's impossible 
to have a communication with someone if the whole time they're speaking, you're thinking about what you want to say. You need to be listening. And that's what he is saying here. Again, relative to the word of God, listen. Listen. Be swift to hear. Be quick to hear. Be, be uh, uh, faithful to hear. And, and this is speaking of a continual saturation, saturation with the word of God and how that if we expect to manifest some first fruits in ourselves, it'll be because we are saturated continually with the word of God and we are swift to hear it. How often in your life uh, are you uh, studying or reading the word of God? Maybe you're doing your devotional and something becomes very close to you right there in that moment. Uh, it happens to me quite often. I've had a particularly difficult week. I could stand up here and cry you a river about the week I've had. And this, because of that week I've had and because of the reaction that I've had to that week, this has happened for me multiple times this week. Where I'm reading the word of God and the word of God speaks directly to that thing that's going on in my life. And I find out that I'm in opposition to what the word of God said I should be doing. That's what this is talking about. Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. But where does the wrath come in? Well, the wrath comes in when things are not going the way you want them to go. And it's very easy to get angry, right? And, uh, but the Word of God says, no, you got to be slow to wrath. You need to look behind that thing and see what's happening there. Why did it occur that way? Next, he, he talks about put aside filthiness and wickedness. That's really what he's saying there, filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. You, I, I dare you to work that phrase into your vocabulary this week. <laughs> it just means extreme wickedness. Uh, just you, Bad. You've been bad. Uh, that's what that means. And he says put aside filthiness and wickedness. This is what I would say about that in the most uh, brief way that I could possibly say it is you, as a born-again believer, cannot live a duplicitous life and expect to be successful or prosperous in the walk of the believer. You cannot be one way in one environment and another way in the other environment. Uh, you can't do that. Uh, we could even say, I think it's a stretch, but you could even say you can't serve two masters. But I mean, it's that concept. It's, it is that way that... You can't be uh, mired in the filth of the world and the wickedness of the world and the poor behaviors of the world, complicit with those things, and be right in the eyes of God. It's impossible. The two do not agree with one another. And so what happens is that becomes an immediate rub in your life and you need to make an adjustment. This is the problem. The adjustment that the enemy would have you make is to push a little harder in that thing you're doing so as to get over the hump of feeling bad about doing it. That's to burn the conscience. That's what that is. The, 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 the adjustment that the word of God would have you make would have you recoil from that thing that is antithetical to what God has revealed. It would be that you would say, this is hypocritical. This is uh, not what uh, I want to present. 
I can't watch this in good conscience. I can't listen to this in good conscience. I can't read this in good conscience because it is antithetical to the work that the Holy Spirit of God is desiring to do in my heart. And I have to put that away. It is a decisive thing. It is an active thing. And it is a daily, maybe multi-times a day thing. Then he says, receive meekness. Receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your soul. You say, wait a minute. I thought I was saved. He said that I've been begat by the will of God. Well, you are saved if you're born again. And you are being saved if you're born again. And you will be saved if you're born again. And the being saved is what the engrafted word of God will do. As you read the word of God, you will be sanctified and conformed to the image of Christ. And the old dead wood will fall off and you'll grow in grace and knowledge as I have already stated and over and over again, that is what you are doing. You're receiving with meekness. What does that look like? That looks like when I read in the Word of God and it, it makes some uh, declarative uh, thing. Uh, uh, <laughs> There's so many and I don't want to, I'm just not trying to make it about that. But when it declares something is sin, I see it and I do not say, well, but... Well, maybe, well, what if, well, God wants, no, I, it, I read it. It's, well, I read it. That, well, that's King James. Well, I'll go over here and I'll look over here in the ESV. Well, well doggone it, it says the same thing. Well, I'll go to the NASB. Well, well, how about that? It says the same thing. Well, I'll call Dr. Deans. He knows the Greek. Yep, brother, that's what it says. Okay, I better. And somewhere along the line, I have to come to the idea that one of those things is premier in my life, and it is either the Word of God or the will of man. And when I read it, at some point, I receive it with meekness. I think about that receive with meekness, that entire attitude. I don't know. I mean, I know a lot of you, and... And I know that many of you were born down here, but I don't believe receive with meekness was an emotion that was taught to people born in the South. Was that, did you, were you taught that, Brother Derek? I was not taught receive with meekness. I taught stand your ground. I, mean, I was taught a lot of things, but I was not taught receive with meekness. That is something that the Holy Spirit of God teaches you. Several weeks ago, I don't want to get too many details here because I'm trying not to ruin my entire reputation. I was coming down the road, and uh, I'm forgetful sometimes, and uh, that, you know, you're supposed to buy a tag every time you have a birthday, and uh, anyway, uh, I forgot that. I was coming down the road, and a tag reader picked my truck up uh, in the midst of other vehicles, minding my own business, pulled me over. And he came up and, you know, of course, he's Brazelton, reputation, all that good stuff. And so the whole time I'm telling that little Yosemite Sam and me, hey, you pipe down. This guy's just doing his job. And he was a friendly guy. He was very nice. But there was some point in that conversation where I had to make a decision, right? I could have said to him, hey, man, listen, 
Um, me and the chief are good friends. I, I don't, there's no need in writing that because I'm going to call him and he's going to tell me to go get my tag and he's going to take it off. I could have done that. I don't know 100% that it would have worked, but it probably would have. <laughs> I could have done that, but it wouldn't have been right, right? Is that right? No, that's not right. Corey, you're a pastor. That's not right. Well, I could have appealed to his good graces, but it wouldn't have been right. Was the tag expired? 100% it was expired. Was it anybody's fault but mine? Absolutely not. I did my best to blame it on Carla. It's not her fault. <laughs> Somewhere in that conversation, an attitude of receive with meekness had to take place. This is happening. There's nothing I can do about it. What I could have done about it, I didn't do. It's too late to do it now. It's that attitude. That's how we ought to approach the Word of God. When we read it and we comprehend it, we ought to respond to it. Receive with meekness the Word. I, I want to say this, and, and I know I need to move. People that utilize uh, Bible verses out of context, they go and cherry pick, and they, they do that looking to, for a proof text of some kind of a lifestyle to support something either that they're doing or that they think that uh, is prevalent in the world and they don't want to condemn it because there may be something in their life that would be condemned if they did condemn it. And, and they go looking for that. The Bible is never meant to be a proof text. It was never meant to be a solution to an argument or an answer to an accusation. That is not the design of the Word of God. The Word of God is teaching quite honestly and straightforward who God is, who you are, what you are, what He did for you, and how He's the only answer for you. That's what it's teaching you. It, it is, it is well, well, preacher, isn't it a, isn't it a, a, a road map? Well, yeah, it is a road map to the extent that God is sovereign and He's got a plan that's going to have to take place, and you're in there. And you, you might as well go ahead and figure out what his will is and accept that, right? That's the roadmap portion of it. it, it is, it's that idea that, that the Bible is not meant to be those argumentative things. The Bible is meant to be a salve to a wounded spirit. It's meant to be a tutor to the disciple. It is meant to give direction rather than affirmation. The Bible was not written for affirmation purposes. That's not what it's there for. The only thing it should affirm in your life is that you were lost and Christ uh, saved you. That's the affirmation you ought to receive. And then he says in verses 22 through 25 that that passage that we, we normally memorize it as children, we teach it to our kids, be you doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's likened unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway he forgetteth what manner of man he was. And then he says, whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty, speaking of the word of God, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. The, the quite simple part of that is be a doer and not a hearer only. I mean, everything else there is meant to give meat and body to that comment, that comment but the idea is that when you read it, you then obey it. Uh, you, you coming to church, and we talk a lot of times about a check-a-box Christianity, that's not profiting anybody anything. It's not helping you. It may make you feel better about that particular moment, but the truth is, and you know this to be the truth, as soon as a better opportunity comes along, you're gone anyway. So you might as well go ahead and go find it now. 
If the Holy Spirit of God is not motivating you to be here, to hear the word and then act in accordance with what you're hearing, you're wasting your time and my emotions. Just quite frankly. I mean, that's what this passage, when it talks about uh, you're like a man that looks in a mirror and then walks away and forgets what manner of man he was, we used to use that idea that, you know, your hair would be messed up or you had something on your face. But it's worse than that. It's not just that you have a stain on your face or dirt on your face and you forget that the dirt is there. It is that you look at yourself and walk away and the next time you see yourself in the mirror, you don't remember who you were. It's talking about I mean, it is presenting a, a mental picture, a picture of somebody who is so far gone in their mental acuity that they can't even recognize their own self in a mirror. That's what he's describing. And for somebody to hear the word of God and not respond to the word of God, but all the while claim to be born of the word of God, that's mental insanity. It doesn't make sense. It just wouldn't happen that way. If you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, you have been begat by the will of God according to the Word of God. And when you hear the Word of God, you should be a doer of the Word of God, not a hearer only. And then last, he says, in verse 26 through 27, he's speaking about practicing a practical holiness. And he says there, if, 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 this is, a, by the way, a precursor to the whole thing about the tongue. This is just kind of wetting your lips a little bit. He's going to give you more of it later. If anybody seems among you to be religious, but he can't bridle his own tongue, he's deceiving his own heart and his religion is in vain. If your belief, if your faith, does not affect your tongue, it is a faulty faith. If, if what you know to be true from the word of God does not affect your character, your speech, and your walk, it's a faulty faith. There's something wrong. You say, are you telling me I'm not saved? I'm, I'm telling you there's something wrong. That's what I'm telling you. I'm telling you that it was designed to do one thing, and it's not doing that thing. If you bought a new car, and you signed all the paperwork, and you walked out, and you turned the key, and it would not start, would you be satisfied with that purchase? No. Why? Because something's wrong with it. This practical holiness ought to be something that we are practicing. We're not, everybody's not on the same page. Listen to me. You're, we're not all going to be equal, equal with one another. You're not even measuring by me, and I'm not measuring by you. The measurement is the Lord Jesus Christ, and we all fall short, but we all ought to be seeking to attain unto it. And it ought to be a continual growth. This uh, fellow named Guy King had this comment, and then we'll close. He said, we should put our faith on trial with the following questions. Do I read the Bible with a humble desire to have God rebuke me, teach me, and change me? 
The assumption is that you read the Bible. The question is, how do you read the Bible? Am I anxious to have my tongue bridled? Do I justify my temper or do I want victory over it? How do I react when someone starts to tell me an off-color joke? Does my faith manifest itself in deeds of kindness to those who cannot repay me? Practical holiness. Would you stand with me this morning? I think several questions are in order. Have you experienced a new birth? That would be the number one thing that you want to nail down before you leave the house of God today. Am I born again? Do I know that I know that I know? Have I placed my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that he accomplished for me on the cross? Have I repented of my unbelief and believed the gospel, called upon the name of the Lord, and have I been saved? If you have been saved, you have experienced a new birth. In that, do you know that you are a form of a first fruit? The other people see you and hope there's more of you coming. How does your Christian walk look practically? Are you growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Savior? And if not, what is preventing you from growing and serving? James is trying to instruct your faith here. I wonder will you listen today. Father, I pray you bless this time of invitation. And I pray that you would work in a way that brings honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The altar is open this morning. Thank you.